Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, good morning, church. So I'm looking back at the sound booth. Is the sound working okay? All right, thank you. So uh, I wanted to share with you that uh, with our video we saw this morning about uh, child care here at Anderson Hills, I can remember uh, back 36 years ago when my husband and I were attending Anderson Hills and we had our first child. I quit my full-time job to be a stay-at-home mom and it was the United Methodist Women who had a circle for mothers of young children, and there was childcare provided for the UMW meetings. So um, I would say that I'm a product of the ministry that this church has been doing by providing childcare for all these many years. It was my experience in United Methodist Women that set me on a trajectory that brought me here to ordained ministry. So um, thank you for supporting the young families of this church by providing child care so that they too can get involved in all the ministries. You are richly blessing their lives. Will you pray with me, please? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On January 13, 1982, about 4 p.m. in the afternoon, an Air Florida Boeing 737 took off from Washington National Airport in the midst of cold and snowy weather. And only about a mile from the end of the runway, the plane went down, crashing into the 14th Street Bridge and then slamming into the icy Potomac River. My husband, Len, and I lived in Washington, D.C. Uh, the first couple of years that we were married, and so we had only recently moved from D.C. back to Cincinnati. And so this crash caught my attention. The entire area of D.C. was a familiar workplace for both of us. Well, that day, traffic was very heavy on the road since businesses had let out early due to the four to six inch snowfall, which is very atypical for Washington. And so traffic and bad weather conspired to prevent um, rescue personnel from being able to reach the site of the crash. Finally, a police helicopter from a nearby uh, national park was able to take off and flew over the wreckage in the water and started dropping a rope to which was attached a life ring hoping to save the lives of the six people who were surviving the crash who were stuck in the cold water. Among those six people was a man named Arland Williams. Arland was a graduate of the Military College of South Carolina, commonly known as the Citadel, where the school motto is honor, duty, and respect. 
After graduation, Arlen had spent two years in the military and at the time of the crash was middle-aged and working for the Federal Reserve Bank. Well, as the police helicopter flew over and let down the life ring, there was a person who was treading water off by himself. That man was able to grab a hold of the life ring and be pulled to shore to safety. And so the helicopter came back and again lowered the life ring. Arlen was alert, and so he grabbed the ring, and then he passed it to the person next to him clinging to the wreckage. That woman put her arms through the ring, and she too was pulled to safety on the shore. Two more times, the helicopter came back, and two more times, Arlen Williams took the life ring and passed it to somebody else, to another survivor in the water. Well, the pilot and the EMT in the helicopter, they were amazed at how uh, loving and self-sacrificing Arlen was being. And so they couldn't wait to come back and rescue him and, and just express their admiration. Only when they came back for that last man in the water, he was nowhere to be found. The wreckage that he'd been holding on to had shifted and it had put him underwater and he had drowned. Well, for a year, Arlen Williams was simply known as the unknown hero of Flight 90 or the man in the water. He had been divorced and he was engaged to be remarried at the time of his death. And he was hailed as having more than once passed the lifeline to others and losing his own life in the process. I remember shortly after the crash occurred, hearing a disc jockey on the radio tell of the sacrifice that Williams had made and then playing in his memory a song by a group named Bread, a popular song that went like this. You sheltered me from harm, you kept me warm, kept me warm. You gave my life to me and set me free. You taught me how to love what it's of. You never said too much, but still you showed the way, and I knew from watching you. And so I would give everything I own, my life, my heart, my home, just to have you back again. The song seemed fitting to commemorate the sacrifice that Arlen had made. In 2010, an artist named Sarah Hickman wrote a song called Last Man in the Water about Williams. You can Google it and listen to it later if you'd like. John said, I mean, I'm sorry, Jesus said in John 15, 13, there's no greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. Arlen Williams gave up his life for total strangers. Perhaps it was because of his formation while at the Citadel and the motto he lived his life by, honor, duty, and respect. Arlen chose to give others the chance of life, even at the expense of his own. Our scripture today is from the letter 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. 
This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God has overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a pastoral letter written to churches who are in conflict, written to address the conflict and to prevent it from spreading. You see, certain members of these early churches had been spreading heresies or untruths and had split the churches over these heresies. And a number of scholars think that this letter was written as a sermon to be given to these churches. The problems in the churches were caused by false teachers who had left the church and were trying to pull others with them. These false teachers denied the incarnation and the deity of Jesus. In other words, they didn't believe that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. They believed Jesus was just a man. They also claimed that they themselves were not sinners. And scholars think they may have been um, early Gnostic heretics who plagued the second century church. That's Gnostic with a G. So these false teachers remained influential, and the danger was that they would persuade new believers to follow them and accept their heretical teachings. And so the Gnostic heretics were commonly using phrases like, I know God, because knowledge for a Gnostic was the way to salvation. Or, I am in the light because they viewed uh, kind of the spiritual light as being separated from, uh, from our bodies and that that was how we got in touch with God. And so these lofty claims were made by people who did not love their neighbors and who did not walk in Christ's footsteps. In fact, loving others was not part of their take on the Christian religion. And so the author of 1 John is describing these claims made by these heretics as being false because those who made them were neither loving nor obedient to Christ's commands. And the Gnostics even went one step further they denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus. They thought that Jesus was just a man who had died on a cross and that Christ's spirit had left before the crucifixion so that the Christ did not experience any suffering or death, hence no need for resurrection. Many of the creeds that we recite today, like the Apostles' Creed, were written in these early centuries of the church to refute the heresies that were circulating in the early centuries after the resurrection. These creeds were written to state what we do believe 
and how we do believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And we believe that he was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day he rose and ascended into heaven. And that we too one day will be resurrected in bodily form. And so faith, for those of us who follow Jesus, is victory over the evil in this world, not because we somehow wield power in a superior way, but because our faith means confessing that Jesus is the Son of God who overcame death, and we too will overcome. And we show that we are a believer, a follower of Jesus by loving all of God's children. These are the very things that the evil one in 1 John had tried to prevent. Victory over the world or the evil in the world does not require us to have spiritual heroics or deny that God doesn't that God loves this world, this creation that God made. No, God loves this world. Victory over the evils in this world is found through faith in Jesus, in who Jesus is, and what he has done for us. Listen again and see if you can hear in this passage how the author was addressing some of these concerns that the heretics were spreading. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, this passage is saying, Jesus is God and human, and if we love God, we will love our fellow human beings. And this love of others is not burdensome because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. And when we show love to our neighbors, we're overcoming the evils of this world, the tragedies of this world, through our faith in Jesus, who we believe is the Son of God. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 5. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself as love. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself as love. Well, do I have to love my irritating neighbor next to me who mows the lawn at 7 o'clock in the morning? Or do I have to love my neighbors who look different than me or may not have, have the same color of skin as me or who even maybe practice a different religion from me? The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself as love. Well, what about my relative who cheated me out of a lot of money? 
The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself as love. Well, I've been feeling really discouraged. COVID is just too much. I haven't been able to see my loved ones. I have a family member who's sick. I am just worn down and weary. What do you have to say to that, Jesus? The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself as love. The challenge is that it's easy to love those who are like us, those who are nice to us, or those who love us back. It's much harder to love someone who isn't like us, who isn't nice to us, or who doesn't love us back. But let me tell you about a couple of people who were able to do just that. Jim Elliott was in his 20s back in the 1950s, and he had felt a call at a young age to become a missionary, to go to remote places where the gospel had not been shared, and to teach people about the love of Jesus. Jim graduated from Wheaton College in Illinois, where he met his future wife, Elizabeth, who also graduated from Wheaton. The motto of Wheaton College is for Christ and his kingdom. And you may have heard of one of the most famous graduates of Wheaton, Billy Graham. Wheaton College was started by Wesleyan abolitionists in the 1800s, and the college was also a stop on the Underground Railroad. And so Wheaton College has its roots in our Wesleyan theology, and Wheaton College was active in helping to provide people who had been slaves their freedom. While Elizabeth was at Wheaton, she studied classical Greek, get this, so she could translate the books of the Bible into future unknown languages. In other words, she wanted to be ready when she was doing missionary work in a remote location to learn that language and then go back to the original Greek of the New Testament and translate the New Testament into that language wherever she was. Both Jim and Elizabeth had spirits of adventure and wanted to share the gospel in remote locations in other countries. And so Jim and Elizabeth, after graduation, went separately to Ecuador to work with the Quechua Indians. Well, in October of 1953, Jim and Elizabeth got married in Quito, Ecuador. And two years later, in 1955, their only child, Valerie, was born. The young couple moved together to a mission base in Ecuador and worked together as a team serving among the Quechua Indians. But Jim felt that he was called to reach another group, the Akas, a violent tribe of Ecuadorian Indians who lived so deep in the jungle that no one knew exactly where their village was. The name Aka means savage because the tribe was known for killing anyone from the outside who tried to gain access to their territory. They were forest hunters and gatherers, and they'd been living that way for hundreds of years, and they wanted to remain as they had been. 
determined to reach this group of people and to share the good news of Jesus with them, Jim pulled together a team of four other men, including a man named Nate Saint, who was their pilot. And they called it Operation Aqua. Nate flew all over the jungle looking for thatched roofs so he could find the village where the Indians lived. And they spotted a small village with thatched roofs along the river only a few minutes from their base. They were excited that God had answered their prayers in finding the aquas and began to make trips with the plane to drop down gifts into the village. They were trying to establish a good relationship with the people. And so they gave things like metal buckets for hauling water from the river, or buttons to fasten together clothing, and pants and shirts. They gave them clothing, too. The men built a small encampment on the beach not too far away, and they were thrilled one day when two women and one man came out from the village to speak with them. The man especially seemed enthralled with the airplane, and so Nate offered to take the man for a ride. Excited that they were making progress in building a positive relationships with the tribe, the men of Operation Aqua celebrated. Well, a few months later, the missionaries decided to go and see if the Aquas would invite them into their village. It was Sunday, and after they held a worship service on the beach, they walked toward the village. They noticed some movement in the bushes and birds flying up into the air as though they'd been disturbed. And so one of the men radioed the wives back at the main camp and said that a large group seemed to be on their way, and would the woman please be praying for a welcoming party from the Aquas. He promised to radio at 4.30 to let them know how it went. Well, 4.30 came and went. There was no message from the men. The wives back at the base camp tried not to worry, but eventually a search and rescue party was sent out on foot to see if anything had happened to the missionaries. Upon arriving to the beach, they found that the plane had been stripped of all its materials and the wings were completely destroyed. Soon they found not one, not two, not three, but four bodies lying in the water of the river with spears embedded in their backs. And the fifth body was found soon after. The five men had been killed in their attempts to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the indigenous tribe in Ecuador, leaving their wives and children behind. For most people, I imagine that that might have been the end of trying to reach the Aqua tribe. The no trespassing message had been sent loud and clear. But Elizabeth, Jim's wife, knew that through her faith, she had the power to overcome the evil of this world. And so after her husband's death, Elizabeth decided to go back in Ecuador to the Quichua village 
and she lived there for two more years, studying and learning the Aqua language. You see, there were two Aqua women who lived with the Quechua tribe. One of them's name was Dayuma. She had run away from the Aqua tribe when her own family had been killed. She taught the Aqua language to Elizabeth and to Nate Saint's sister, Rachel. And so during the next two years, Elizabeth and Rachel prepared to go to the people who had killed their husband and brother and to share the gospel with them. And so in 1958, Elizabeth Elliot, with her three-year-old daughter, Valerie, and Rachel Saint went to live with the tribe that had killed their husband, father, and brother. Dayuma was able to create an opening for them to be welcomed into the tribe. And so Elizabeth spent two years with the Aquas teaching them about the good news of Jesus. She taught from the Bible about forgiveness and about love. And her forgiveness and acceptance of the tribe are what led them to accept Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. She taught them to forgive fearlessly and to love tremendously, which forever transformed their way of life. One of the first men to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior was Minke, the man who had speared Nate Saint, Rachel's brother. Well, after receiving Christ as a sign of their transformation, the tribe renamed, the tribe renamed itself Morani, indicating that they were no longer who they were, but had been made new in Jesus Christ. Today, there are still Christ followers in the Warani tribe, and they talk about following God's trail on a daily basis. And they don't consider anyone as a Christ follower unless that person has trusted Christ as their Savior, been baptized, and that the fruit of that person's life shows that they are following Christ. And so what do the stories of Arlen Williams and Jim and Elizabeth Elliot have to do with us? How do their stories intersect with ours? Well, the story of Arlen Williams and the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot reminds us that the call to follow Jesus Christ is not an easy one that we will be asked to do hard things. And that doing God's work doesn't mean that we're promised safety. And doing God's work doesn't guarantee that we will be the ones to see the immediate results. But when we are following the Lord God, we can rest in the assurance that Jesus is always with us. God does not leave us alone. And that through our faith in Christ, 
we can and will overcome the evils of this world even if we overcome in the next life. And so when your life seems filled with trouble, when your loved one has died or perhaps you've gotten that phone call from the doctor with bad news, maybe you've lost a job and you're wondering how you're going to pay your bills. Remember that through your faith in Jesus, who is the Son of God, you, through the Holy Spirit, have the power to overcome. Jesus will not leave you alone. And Jesus will make you an overcomer, too. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself as love. There's no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. And when we follow Jesus, we can overcome anything the world throws at us because through Jesus Christ, we have the power to overcome. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the example of Arland Williams and Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, our fathers and mothers in the faith who have gone before us and shown us how to stay true to our calling to follow you, even in the face of great obstacles. Help us to remember that we are victorious. We will be overcomers because, Jesus, you are the one who gives us the victory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.